0: Section 6 of Astounding Stories 15, March 1931. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 15, March 1931, by Various. Beyond the Vanishing Point by Ray Cummings CHAPTER Two, THE GIRL AN INCH TALL We soared over the divided channel of the St. Lawrence, between Orleans and the mainland. Montmorency Falls in a moment showed dimly white through the murk to our left, a great hanging veil of ice higher than Niagara. Further ahead, the lights of the little village of St. Anne de Beaupré were visible with the grey-black towering hills behind them, historic region." But Alan and I had no thoughts for it. "'Swing left, George, over the mainland. That's St. Anne. We passed this side of it. Put the mufflers on. This damn thing roars like a tower siren!' I cut in the mufflers and switched off our wing-lights. It was illegal, but we were past all thought of that. We were both desperate. The slow, prudent process of acting within the law had nothing to do with this affair. We both knew it. Our little plane was dark, and amid the sounds of this night blizzard our muffled engine could not be heard. Alan touched me. "'There are his lights. See them?' We had passed St. Anne. The hills lay ahead, wild mountainous country stretching northward to the foot of Hudson Bay. The blizzard was roaring out of the north and we were heading into it. I saw, on what seemed a dome-like hill perhaps a thousand feet above the river level, a small cluster of lights which marked Poulter's property. "'Fly over at once, George. Lo! We can chance it! And find a place to land outside the walls!' We presently had it under us. I held us at five hundred feet and cut our speed to the minimum of twenty miles an hour facing the gale though it was sixty or seventy when we turned. There were a score or two of hooded ground lights, but there was little reflection aloft, and in the murk of the snowfall I felt we would escape notice. We crossed, turned and went back in an arc following Poulter's outer curved wall. We had a good view of it, a weird enough looking place here on its lonely hilltop. No wonder the wealthy Frank Rascor had attained local prominence. The whole property was irregularly circular, perhaps a mile in diameter, covering the almost flat dome of the hilltop. Around it, completely enclosing it, Poulter had built a stone and brick wall. A miniature wall of china. We could see that it was fully thirty feet high, with what evidently were naked high-voltage wires protecting its top. There were half a dozen little gates, securely barred, with doubtless a guard at each of them. Within the wall there were several buildings a few small stone houses, suggesting workmen's dwellings, an oblong stone structure with smoke funnels, which seemed perhaps a smelter, a huge, dome like spread of translucent glass over what might have been the top of a mine shaft. It looked more like the dome of an observatory. An inverted bowl, fully a hundred feet wide and equally as high, set upon the ground. What did it cover? And there was Poulter's residence, a castle-like brick and stone building with a central tower, not unlike a miniature of the Chateau Frontenac. We saw a stone corridor on the ground connecting the lower floor of the castle with the dome, which lay about a hundred feet to one side. Could we chance landing inside the wall? there was a dark level expanse of snow where we could have done it but our descending plane would doubtless have been discovered but the mile-wide inner area was dark in many places spots of light were at the little wall gates there was a glow all along the top of the wall lights were in poulter's house they slanted out in yellow shafts to the nearby white ground but for the rest the whole place was dark save a dim glow from under the dome. I shook my head at Alan's suggestion. We couldn't land inside. We had circled back and were a mile or so off toward the river. You saw the guards down there, but that low stretch outside the gate on this side. A plan was coming to me. Heaven knows it was desperate enough, but we had no alternative. We would land and accost one of the gate guards, force our way in. Once inside the wall, on foot in the darkness of this blizzard, we could hide, creep up to that dome. Beyond that my imagination could not go. We landed in the snow a quarter of a mile from one of the gates. We left the plain and plunged into the darkness. It was a steady upward slope. A packed snowfield was underfoot, firm enough to hold our shoes, with a foot or so of loose soft snow on its top. The falling flakes whirled around us. The darkness was solid. Our helmeted leather-furred flying suits were soon shapeless with a gathering white shroud. We carried our essence in our gloved hands. The night was cold, around zero, I imagine, though with that biting wind it felt far colder. From the gloom a tiny spot of light loomed up. There it is, Alan. Easy now. Let me go first. The wind tore away my words. We could see the narrow rectangle of bars at the gate, with a glow of light behind them. Hide your gun, Alan. I gripped him. Hear me? Yes. Let me go first. I'll do the talking. When he opens the gate, let me handle him. You, if there are two of them, you take the other." We emerged from the darkness into the glow of light by the gate. I had the horrible feeling that a shot would greet us. A challenge came, at first in French, then in English. Stop! What do you want? To see Mr. Rascore. We were up to the bars now, shapeless hooded bundles of snow and frost. A man stood in the doorway of a lighted little cubby behind the bars. A black muzzle in his hand was leveled at us. He sees no one. Who are you?' Alan was pressing at me from behind. I shoved back and took a step forward. I touched the bars. "'My name is Fred Davis, newspaper man from Montreal. I must see Mr. Rascor. You cannot. You may send in your call. The mouthpiece is there, out there to the left. Bear your face.' He talks to no one without the face image." The guard had drawn back into his cubby. There was only his extended hand and the muzzle of his weapon left visible. I took a step forward. "'I don't want to talk by phone. Won't you open the gate? It's cold out here. We have important business. We'll wait with you.' Abruptly the gate lattice slid aside. Beyond the cubby doorway was the open darkness within the wall. A scuffed path leading inward from the gate showed for a few feet. I walked over the threshold, with Alan crowding me. The Essen in my coat pocket was leveled. But from the cubby doorway I saw that the guard was gone. Then I saw him crouching back of a metal shield. His voice rang out, Stand! A light struck my face. A little beam from a television sender beside me. It all happened in an instant, so quickly Alan and I had barely time to make a move. I realized my image was now doubtless being presented to Poulter. He would recognize me. I ducked my head, yelling, "'Don't do that! You frighten me!' It was too late. The guard had received a signal. I was aware of its buzz. From the shield a tiny jet of fluid leapt at me. It struck my hood. There was a heavy, sickening, sweet smell. It seemed like chloroform. I felt my senses going. The cubby room was turning dark. Was roaring. I think I fired at the shield, and Alan leapt aside. I heard the faint hiss of his Essen, and his choked, horrified voice. George, come back! Run! Don't fall! Don't! I crumpled slid into blackness, and it seemed as I went down that Alan's inert body was falling on top of me. I recovered consciousness after a nameless interval, a phantasmagoria of wild, drugged dreams. My senses came slowly. At first there were dim muffled voices and the tread of footsteps. Then I knew that I was lying on the ground, and that I was indoors. It was warm. My overcoat was off. Then I realized that I was bound and gagged. I opened my eyes. Alan was lying inert beside me, roped and with a black gag around his face and in his mouth. We were in a huge dim open space. Presently, as my vision cleared, I saw that the dome was overhead. This was a circular, hundred-foot-wide room. It was dimly lighted. The figures of men were moving about, their great misshapen shadows shifting with them. Twenty feet from me there was a pile of golden rock, chunks of gold the size of a man's fist, or his head and larger, heaped loosely into a mound ten feet high. Beyond this pile of ore, near the centre of the room, twenty feet above the concrete floor, there was a large hanging electrolier. It cast a circular glow downward. Under it I saw a low platform raised a foot or two above the ground. A giant electro microscope was hung with its twenty-foot cylinder above the platform. Its intensification tubes were glowing in a dim phosphorescent row on a nearby bracket. A man sat in a chair on the platform at the microscope's eyepiece. I saw all this with a brief glance, then my attention went to a white stone slab under the giant lens. It rested on the platform floor, a two-foot square surface of smooth white stone like marble. A little roped railing a few inches high fenced it, and in its center lay a fragment of golden quartz the size of a walnut. There was a movement across my line of vision. Two figures advanced. I recognized both of them. And I strained at my bonds, mouthed the gag with a futile, horrified effort. I could no more than writhe, and I could not make a sound. I lay, after a moment, exhausted and stared with horror. The familiar hunched figure of Poulter advanced toward the microscope, and with him, his huge hand holding her wrists, was Bab's. They were nearly fifty feet from me, but with the light over them I could see them clearly. Bab's slim figure was clad in a long-skirted dress, pale blue now with the light on it. Her long black hair had fallen disheveled to her shoulders. I could not see her face. She did not cry out. Poulter was half-dragging her as she resisted him, and then abruptly she ceased struggling. I heard his guttural voice. "'That is better!' They mounted to the platform. It seemed to me that they must have been far away, they were very small, abnormally small." I blinked. Horror surged over me. Their figures were dwindling as they stood there. Poulter was saying something to the man at the microscope. Other men were nearby, watching. All normal save Poulter and Babs. A moment passed. Poulter was standing by the chair in which the man at the microscope was sitting and poulter's head barely reached its seat babs was clinging to him now another moment they were both little figures down by the chair-leg then they began walking with swaying steps toward the tiny railing of the white slab the white reflection from the slab plainly illumined them poulter's arm was around babs i had not realized how small they were until i saw poulter lift the rope of the four-inch little fence and he and Bab stooped and walked under it. The fragment of quartz lay a foot from them in the center of the white surface. They walked unsteadily toward it, but soon they were running. My horrified senses whirled. Then, abruptly, I felt something touch my face. Alan and I were lying in shadow. No one had noticed my writhing movements, and Alan was still in drugged unconsciousness. Something tiny and light and soundless as a butterfly wing brushed my face. I jerked my head aside. On the floor, within six inches of my eyes, I saw the tiny figure of a girl an inch high. She stood with a warning gesture to her lips, a human girl in a filmy, flowing drapery. Long pale golden tresses lay on her white shoulders. Her face, small as my little fingernail, colorful as a miniature painted upon ivory, was so close to my eyes that I could see her expression, warning me not to move. There was a faint glow of light on the floor where she stood, but in a moment she moved out of it. Then I felt her brush against the back of my head. My ear was near the ground. A tiny warm hand touched my earlobe, clung to it, a tiny voice sounded in my ear. Please, do not move your head. You might kill me. There was a pause. I held myself rigid. Then the tiny voice came again. I am Glora, a friend. I have the drug. I will help you. End of chapter 2